I always find this quite funny when clients get their new websites done and they've outsourced it and someone else has done it and they've chosen all these lovely images, but nobody's black, nobody's of an of, of a different minority ethnic background, for example. And and I get it, it's almost like people they're just not thinking about it. People kind of work in their own image. And even things like that, look at your website. If you're using stock photos, make sure your stock photos are diverse. listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Dija Ayodele has made her name as an advocate for providing the tools for people of color to be educated on their unique skincare needs and pushing the beauty industry to better serve this sector. She's founder of Westroom Aesthetics in London, a clinic whose mission is to consistently elevate skincare experience for women of color and to champion accessible skincare. As well as being a Glamour magazine columnist, she's also founder of the award-winning educational platform, Black Skin Directory. In 2021, she published Black Skin, The Definitive Skincare Guide, which not only gives essential insights to women of color on how to care for their skin, but also examines how history has shaped how black women have expressed themselves in beauty and skincare and looks at the very concept of identity. Having recently read this fascinating book, I was eager to ask her about it. Let's dive in. Deja, welcome to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. We're thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. I really enjoyed your book. First of all, I have to say that. Um, I think it was very enlightening in many different ways. Why did you write it? Um, I mean, I think it's a mixture of things. I think it's just the culmination of many years of being at the cold front of um, especially women of color coming into my clinic and complaining about their journey to get there, to to find me. Um, The legwork, the anxiety, the um, trials and errors and all that sort of stuff, and not necessarily feeling confident in the practitioners they had around them, um, understanding their needs, maybe from a cultural point of view, perhaps. Um, and, And also combined with the data that we have on um, Black Skin Directory, which is the other platform that I run. And just knowing that there was all this, there was this gap basically where people needed information, especially women of color needed information. They needed to be, um, to have information on the suitability of treatments, what sorts of treatments were available to them on product information. I think all of that sort of just combined um, kind of propelled me a little bit to, to, to put pen to paper. So um who did you write it for? Did you write it for um, regular women, um, regular women, or did you write it for the aesthetic clinics and skin therapists, or is it really a combination of both? 
I think it's a combination of both. I think I straddle both worlds quite well. Um, absolutely, it's inspired by the regular woman that comes into my into my clinic space. Absolutely, 110%. But at the same time, um, I'm involved in a lot of education and I see a lot of the times how, um, especially from a sort of a beauty therapist, uh, esthetician point of view level of education, um, I'm aware of where there's gaps in that system as well. I'm aware of therapists who will easily tell me that, you know, I'm not that confident on black skin. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. There's so many myths, there's so many misconceptions. I'm aware of that. I hear that day in, day out. So part of me also wanted to make sure that it was accessible to people who work at the front face of, of skincare. So, you know, yes, our aesthetic doctors and dermatologists work within skincare, but they, especially within aesthetic practice, it tends to be more about the, the, the fillers, the, the, the more advanced sort of treatments, not, not your day-to-day, -day, you know, your chemical peel, your microneedling, not your day-to-day -day like that. So I wanted therapists, especially to be able to gain something from it. Okay, so we'll talk about um, what aesthetic clinics um, and therapists can do in a second. But first of all, one of the things I found really interesting about your book was this combination of practical advice and kind of the big picture. You really went on a journey through um, what, what beauty, conceptions of beauty essentially mm -hmm. for, women with, for women with black skin mm -hmm. um, and what inclusion has really meant. Um, and you you made the case strongly that um, that there is more inclusion for black skin in the beauty industry than there used to be, but not full inclusion. Yeah. So can you can you can you expand on that? What what's gotten better first of all over the last few years? I think over the last few years the narrative has changed quite a lot. We're seeing a lot more representation of black skin within beauty. We're seeing a lot more in advertising. We're seeing a lot more in clinical trials. We're able to extract this information a lot better. Um, I think even when you look at beauty press per se, um, that is also I, I I come from a very beauty press background as well because I, I have a column of Glamour magazine and I and I've always written and blogged and that sort of stuff and I think even the narrative has changed. You're having a lot more journalists, be them white or black or any other ethnicity, they are writing in a lot more of an inclusive manner. They're pulling different strands out to say, well, if you're black, you might be interested in this, all within the same article. So there's less need for specialist media. Um, for certain uh, ethnicities or anything like that, because it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more well-rounded. So that has gone tremendously well. I think within things what's like still, what's still, what's still missing when you say you're not full inclusion. What, what what are the bits that are missing? I think what I think the bits that are missing actually are to do with education, are to do with that that sort of journey that I write about in the book in terms of um, uh, the, being able to understand. And I think that gives you some of the answers of the why. Why, for example, I have practitioners who say to me, "Why why are black women sort of so, so against having fillers or anything like that?" And I think that historical aspect gives you the why. And so I think the education for therapist is what's missing I think the education for um, medical professionals is missing um, especially when we have now we have platforms like mind the gap and all that sort of stuff which show how different conditions look on on darker skin tone I think that element is still missing and without that element I think you'll still have in some regards a lack of inclusion okay so 
what are the first steps? So clinics that really want to become genuinely more inclusive, what are the practical things they should be doing? I think one of the practical, one of the easiest practical things they could be doing is, for example, read my book, read some of the work I've done. I think that's an that, easy- that, that goes without saying. That goes without saying, right? So I think that's one of the things they could do. But also, when I talk to to women, even things like looking at your social media, for example, um, if your clinic who's posting lots of stuff on Instagram, is does everyone look the same? Is, is what you post reflective of your clinical breadth of experience of your of your clientele? It, it, that's a really basic one that I, so many people miss. Another, and, 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 and I and I think that people don't realize how important that is because actually, yeah. um, as part of one of the strategies that we were developing for one of the clinics that we work with, I was recently personally doing some patient research. Hmm. And I spoke to a woman. Actually, this was on a different continent in the US. Yeah. Um, and she said to me, the reason, so I always ask, you know, why do you come to this clinic? And she said, because I saw pictures of people who were diverse and I knew they could treat people like me. Yeah. I don't even know if the clinic was doing it deliberately or in a thoughtful, um, mm-hmm. deliberate way, mm-hmm. but it had such an impact. Yeah, it does. It really does. And things like, I always find this quite funny when, when people, when clinics get their new websites done and they've outsourced it and someone else has done, they've chosen all these lovely images, but nobody's black, nobody's of an, of of a different minority ethnic background, for example. And, and I get it. It's almost like people, they're just not thinking about it. People kind of work in their own image and even things like that. Look at your website. If you're using stock photos, make sure your stock photos are diverse. If you can, um, hold your own photo shoot if it's possible if it's affordable do that if you even things like showing your treatment so it's one thing showing obviously your 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 pictures but if you can show your treatment as an, a video of them on different skin different skin tones it actually makes people feel more relaxed it it removes cynicism as well so that's kind of from a marketing point of view. Yeah. But what are, what are, um, what, what are providers need to do in clinic? Because one of the comments they made in the book that actually you said here as well was that many therapists, skin therapists are afraid to mm-hmm. treat skin of color. So mm-hmm. what are the kind of the practical things that they, that, that really I think they, everyone should be doing? I think practical, practical things, when you get your, when you check your brands, right, check your brands to see whether your brands have any clinical trials on darker skin tones. That is a level of comfort that your therapist can take forward. They can confidently speak of the clinical trials on darker skin tones. Ask if your, your, your brands have any imagery on darker skin tones off their products and their trials again that empowers you it's about empowering your therapist as well or even you as a clinician it's about empowering yourself too um those are practical says have a have a organize a day we've done this before where we've organized a day for models to come in um we maybe have to given a discount on the treatment um we we may have given out the treatment for free just so that we can our, our therapists are, are aware of different concerns. Um, sometimes it's just even with consultation. We've had days where we've said half price consultations, for example, just so therapists, again, has sat in front of someone who looks different to them and has listened to the queries of someone who looks different to them. I think there's a real practical steps you, you can take to ensure that, you know, you, you're serving as wide a group as possible. So those are things that individual clinics can do. Do you think there are also wider changes needed in the industry? Talking about that as kind of a big amorphous thing, but 
what are the kind of the wider, the wider changes that you think are necessary? I think, I think there needs to be, and I've had personal experience of this. I think there needs to be a wider acceptance that um, we we have this thing. I don't know if it's a UK thing, but we have this thing where we're so, oh we're all colorblind. Nobody sees anybody's color, and and I I have come across clinicians who are very much like you're staring the pot here. You're, there was nothing wrong. You're staring the pot, and I think as an industry we do, we generally need to take into account that actually no colorblind theory doesn't work. Not in not in aesthetics, not in beauty, where everyone wants to be recognized in their own right. Um, and I think that's more of a a sort of psychological change. I know that um is it is it is it kind of a form of denial or what is that I think so I think it's 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 I think it's it's a very British thing um to to sort of batten down the hatches a little bit I know that when I mean I'm I'm no longer part of the the board of the black aesthetics advisory board but I know that we did receive commentary um written commentary in fact that said you're stirring the pot you are causing trouble. Um, and, and I think, and, and I think several sort of people within aesthetics did think like that as well. Um, and fail to realize actually how important, um, diversity and inclusivity and having the conversations around it are. So actually you preempted one of my, one of the things I was going to ask you anyway, which is about the fact that your book is inevitably focused on the UK, you're British. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you have any sense of how the conversation is different in the US? Have you had any exchange, first of all, with people dealing with similar issues in America? Yeah, I mean, um, in America, they also have the sort of black derm, dermatologist lists and directories as well. So there is there. I have conversations regularly of people saying, when are you coming to the States? Um, my book is going to be published in the States um, in May next year because we, we, we were told of the need for it there um, and the demand for it there has been high as well. Um, so that is definitely a thing. But I think America... Is is it's it, it the conversation is is much much more open. I think they have much more open conversations regarding diversity and inclusivity um, than than we do, and, and they have a, a stronger and a bigger market as well for black and darker skin tones. So, is there anything there that that um, obviously I'm very aware that the the audience for this podcast, by the way, is very very split between um, the UK and the US. But is there anything that um, that, that both of us uh, sitting here in the UK is there anything that we can learn from what's going on in the US? Anything we can we can learn from what's going on in the US? I think I mean I personally love the the American um, the, the fact that they they proudly stand on we have services for skin of color. They, they do not sort of shy away from that sort of conversation. Um, I, I, I love that. And I, think, and I think it makes for, you know where you stand. It's a much more effective delivery of service. You know, you, you are much more aware of who your clientele is. I absolutely think that we could learn a little bit from, from that. Um, I think, I think we, we fee, in the UK, we fear upsetting somebody else rocking the boat and 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 I don't think it's rocking the boat to ensure that we can all participate in beauty and aesthetics equally um you know I, I don't think that's rocking the boat at all and I and I love that in America that, that it's just so open so that's one of the barriers really to um to, to more inclusivity people being afraid really of, of, 
almost talking mm-hmm. about it. Um, what are the other barriers, do you think, beyond kind of lack of awareness? Um, I think some of the other barriers are, are to do with just even things like product uh, brands, not necessarily providing the information, brands sort of, um, there was a case um, last week of a sunscreen brand that sort of sort of developed new new product development, but they only they I think it was some tinted moist tinted sunscreens, but they didn't provide anything for for darker skin tones. So what they did provide was very very little compared to everything else. I think some of the barriers as well is just the brands perhaps not having the the. I think I think that was a finance thing more than the technology thing because I think the technology exists. Um, not thinking widely enough, I think brands don't actually always engage with their with their black consumers. Um, uh, there's sometimes a very lazy our community says, um, as in like an Instagram community, and it's like we all know what happens on Instagram. It's a highlight reel. It's not necessarily real life. Um, and I think that can be a bit of a, a conundrum and, and a hurdle as well. So I think hurdle, her, education is a hurdle. The fact that, for example, the UK um, medical degree doesn't actually, unless you're studying to become a dermatologist, doesn't actually spend that much time on skin. If you're just doing a sort of a general medical degree, you have to go further to get that skin expertise. That in itself is a hurdle because then what you do, what happens is you hear it all the time of, of a black patient goes into the GP and they find it, it's a tougher time to diagnose something on them because the GP may have not seen that before, unless they had a special interest in skin, for example. So even that, the education system can present hurdles in, in, in its own right. So even that needs looking at. You know, your, um, your, your clinic, Western Aesthetics, which we'll actually talk about quite a lot um, in a few minutes, mm-hmm. um, is, is really focused on women of skin of color. Do you think that, obviously you have your own business reasons um, and your own personal passionate reasons for yeah. a clinic like that. Um, but do, do you think that's really the way to go ultimately for, you know, for the industry or is that kind of something that's by necessity really? Um, I think I have, I have many, many feelings about this. Um, our Western aesthetics is a, a destination for women of color. Absolutely. But I think that, um, one thing that we have a wide variety of clients come from many different backgrounds. However, we do, we, because I have personally seen witnessed and been part of myself, the lack of provision for people who do look like me or the lack of understanding of the kind of concerns I have. Um, I think it was definitely a necessity. I think as, I think as time goes on from a, from a business perspective, um, there's, there will be less need for businesses to niche onto skin of color. Um, Definitely. Because um, if you're looking at the way the markets are going um, more, as more and more people get clued up, on as more and more clinicians and, and clinics get clued up on, on you know, building their therapist's confidence and, and marketing themselves wider, which is what we want, right? We want more inclusive, we want people to be able to go to anywhere. You'll find that there's less need for niching, absolutely. But for me, I definitely wanted to create a space where um, all the concerns I'd heard over all the years of practice, I wanted to create a space where those concerns had been leveled out. Um, but yeah. Um, it, it's a personal thing, I think. 
Okay, so I, I just before we move on, I, there was something else that really struck me um, about your book that you gave an extremely interesting um, overview of attitudes to, um, to 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 beauty for women with um, with, with black skin, um, and you make the case that. For centuries, black women have been what you called slaves to the white aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's almost like a that that's just not not just about providing access to better skincare. That's a whole, you know, really a mentality change. Yeah. Um, h- how do you that? That's really hard to do. How do you change that and help black women, as you put it, reclaim their own beauty? I think it's about the appreciation. And I think that's more, it's one of those questions where it's like, it's it's more us than anyone else. Um, I think it's within the black community itself. I know black community is not a monolith, but within large swathes of it, we have to accept our own curly hair. We have to accept our own uh, large, you know, more more voluptuous lips. We have to do that. That's an in, that's an internal thing. Um, but I think after um, years uh, or centuries, rather, of being told that no, that's not beautiful. The 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 white aesthetic is the more beautiful one. Um, that's a the process that has to happen. But I also think that even things like magazines, not necessarily putting black women on the front covers, or, I mean, it's happening more now, but back in the day, I when I used to, when I worked more in magazines, I used to hear comments along the lines of, if you put a black woman on the cover, you can be guaranteed it's not going to sell. So even that tells you that, well, am I not beautiful enough to be on the front cover, like, I don't know, Angelina Jolie, and then sell a magazine? So even that needs, uh, things like that that are changing help, the younger generation coming up accept that you know I am as equally as beautiful as somebody else so that's more of a, a of a situation where you know during slavery if you were if you were lighter you worked in the house if you so if the closer you were to being a light, lighter skinned or closer to white you worked in the house things like that are changing but within pockets of the black community you still have people who are skin bleaching to be lighter because and and that's an internal like you say that's a mental shift and, and I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility of another ethnic group or demographic, but I think other groups can support that change. Deja, have you seen a, a difference in the levels of awareness and any kind of practical change since, since the Black Lives Matter movement has exploded into being? I think the change that the, is, is it's, to be honest, Immediately after, say, George Floyd and the, the whole pickup with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, there were a lot of sort of pledges from different brands. We'll, we'll do better. We'll look at our demographics in-house. We'll make sure we'll, we'll pledge this. We'll pledge that and all that sort of stuff. There was an immediate lot because I think what happened is brands saw, um, saw, saw an advantage in it, saw that there was a whole concept of allyship uh, in which non-black people may boycott their brand for example and there was a loss of income and all that I think we saw a lot of a lot of shift however it shifted back in the opposite direction and I hear a lot of complaints how how, how come um I think I think a lot of the time once brands realize diversity and inclusivity costs it's not free hard work 
it's hard work. It's not free. It costs money. Um, you know, I've had I've had experiences where people have asked me to consult for them and my management team gives them a fee and they go, oh, you yeah, know, pay for this. <laughs> yeah. So I think once brands realize that actually to make our skincare more, more inclusive and include more black people on clinical trials, to expand our foundation ranges, to make sure we have darker skin, you know, once they realize and totted up those costs, I think people did pull back. And, and sadly, it, it, it showed. I know many people um, who were pulled in as consultants last year, many black women who were pulled in as consultants to brands who that's all dried up all this, that consulting has dried up um that is not to say there aren't at some brands who have been working at it diligently there are what you're basically saying is that talk is cheap actually doing it is yeah walk, walk, walking the walk is is actually um it, it, it's got some cost attached to it and brands have gotten away with it for so long um it's not that, though, on the very i think on the very first page or maybe the second or third page of your book you also talk about the economic opportunity so there is an economic case apart from anything to do with justice um and and serving your patients and your clients well there is also an economic case you you did say i think that um on average black women actually spend more on their skincare and that there yeah. are there are more opportunities there yeah yeah economically there is a case for it but i think it's the return on income isn't on or income or investment is not immediate. So, so therefore, what happens is, which has happened as well since since Black Lives Matter, is that brands will invest um, and don't realize that investment within nine months or a year, they pull back on whatever it is they provided and say, well, you know, we did provide it, but black women were not buying it. And and therefore we go back in the circle. So they didn't really give it a chance, and then and then there's an excuse. Yeah, yeah, that that has happened. We we've all we've seen it, especially if you work within the cosmetics, beauty, color, beauty side of things. You've we see it. You know, it's like oh, that was here a minute ago. It's gone. What happened? It's really very typical, though, with mark with marketing and investment. You know, I, I, the, the the there is a very short termist attitude. Yeah, people do not take enough. They don't really understand that some of these things really do take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, you know, also in terms of just marketing campaigns, establishing your visibility in the market, all these things do take time, and there's such yeah. a rush to to see the return on investment yeah. that they sacrifice yeah. really good things. Yeah. Yeah, there are some brands who I've worked with and I continue to work with um, who who I feel are are doing great behind the scenes work. And the fact that I continue to work with them, I think, shows their commitment and their pledge. Um, so I because I do some consulting as well. And the fact that I I'm called on to consult with them regularly on different plans that they have on on different products they're bringing out on on the language they use for product and all that sort of stuff the fact that I'm continuing to do that inspires me that some brands are taking their commitment seriously and have a lot a a lot more of a long-term approach to it did you tell me a little bit about your background um you were born in Sierra Leone is that right yeah yeah Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and uh, and, and how your yeah. was awakened. So I was I was born in Sierra Leone. I um I lived there till I was ten, 
Um, and by then I moved to, to London and I went to school in London. Um, and I, I went to school in central London. So I was in a very sort of diverse environment where I went to school. Um, my school was just a stone's throw away from Selfridges. So I was very used to kind of going into the beauty hall and playing around and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I, it, I always joke that I didn't know that other people weren't buying their foundation at sort of 40 quid a pop. You know, I thought that was normal until I went to university and it's like, and I went to university in a small town. Um, I went to Bristol. Okay. Small city rather. And I, and I was, hold on a second at the lower end of the price range, there isn't anything for anyone who looks like me, but I, I just thought it was normal. So, um, which again, just showed that whole, as a black woman, I spend more, I, I spent more. And a lot of that was due to a lack of lack of awareness of anything else and also a lack of choice because even when I didn't discover that there were lower priced foundations, there was nothing for me. So I was forced to spend more anyway. And also um, dropping in Selfridges, let's be honest. <laughs> Pardon, <laughs> and also shopping in Selfridges. Yeah, well, I guess because it's, it's the only, I, it was it was like almost the only shop I knew. Um, and then, um, but so then, how, how were you interested in such a, an early? How early were you really interested in in, in beauty and aesthetics? Though it sounds like oh, it's very early interest. From from a very very young child, even before I was ten. Um, I always, my my mum used to use oil of oil of um, oil of ule. So I remember when it was oil of ule, not oil of ole, or whichever the switch was. Um, and I'd always been interested. My mum was, you know, she worked in a very sort of front facing role. She was a general manager. She worked in hospitality, so she was always well groomed, and that was always something I was always aware of as a child. Nails done, hair done, face on. You know, I was always aware of it. So. For, which is why when I was 12 and playing about in Selfridges was normal for me because it's something I'd always grown up with. I'd seen my mum put makeup on, put perfume on, you know, pep in the step, out to work, you know. And I just thought, you know, it's what, it's what everyone did. <laughs> and at what stage did you actually decide? You said you went to university, you went to Bristol. So at what stage did you decide that you wanted to go into, into aesthetics? Um, I didn't know aesthetics was a career. I didn't know working in, in beauty or anything like that was a career. I just thought it was something that you went and got done, not the other way around. Um, and it's when I actually came back to London and I was working, I had a, I had a job in the city and I was bored out of my skull. Um, the funny part was I actually really, um, I was really good at my job. Um, but I, you know, I, I just wasn't thrilled by it, but what I, were you actually doing in the city? So I worked in investment banking. I worked in, in, in HR for an investment bank. Um, and, um, it was a very sort of, it was a sort of busy, high powered job. I, I was good at it, but didn't particularly love it. Um, and I used to do as a spare time, this was way before children used to do beauty courses. Um, and that's when I, <laughs> when it kind of you know triggered in my head that oh there might be something in this um and I sort of gently made steps in into into beauty and aesthetics and that sort of thing and I, even my boss I remember my boss encouraging me saying clearly that's what you love doing um you may be great at your work but you've got your whole can you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life 
It must have felt super risky, though, going from what sounds like a really good job in the city of London, um, you know, it, it, into into something completely unknown. I was too young to notice. I mean, if 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 I had if knowing what I know now, um, I would probably be more cautious. But I think I was too young to notice. I was I was unmarried. I didn't have any responsibilities as such. Um, I'd earned a lot of money. Um, and I literally was, yeah, I was, and I was literally, you know, you have that mindset or oh, I have a degree. If this doesn't work out, I can always go do something, go back to it. So I think I had that that sort of landing ground safety net that allowed me to, to do that. And plus I think early 20s, your your I guess attitude to risk is is different. I definitely wouldn't and, and, and it's your attitude to risk and real risk, right? In that you're yeah. in your twenties, genuinely you carry less risk. Yeah. So yeah. When 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 you're in your fifties and retirement is closer and you have you know possibly family more. Yeah, you you it is genuinely riskier. Yeah, I would say so. I would definitely say so. Um and and I mean you know, I have younger people now who who ask and say you know I'd love to do this what you know, I always say you know make sure you've got a good safety net, um, but at the same time I'm I'm always very conscious that there are no dress rehearsals. This is one life to live, and if you are not a tree, if you are unhappy, you should move. Um, but make sure that you know move move quickly so that you can get yourself back together if needed. Um, and, and, and that's always going to be what, you know, I, I sincerely live there's, by there's one life. There's a saying, in there, you, should, you should fail quickly. <laughs> yeah, move quickly, find out if it's going to work out for you. If it's not going to work out, you move on and you, you do something else. But I, I definitely wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't, the advice I give is not to, not to hang around in something you don't enjoy. There's only one life. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about your um, very unique clinic in a second. But first, we're just going to go for a quick break, and we'll be back um, in a in a few minutes with DJ Delhi. We'll be back in a second. Nothing is more demoralizing than investing in an expensive aesthetic device, committing to a payment plan, and then hearing nothing from your patients. Those payments eat into your profit margins, leaving you with less cash at the end of each month. They might even erase your profit completely. This resonates, you're not alone, which is why I'm forming a pilot program. I'm looking for two aesthetic clinic owners to work directly with me to get their first 10 patients for an underused but high margin treatment, turning it from a drain on your finances into a cash flow asset inside of 12 weeks. There are some criteria. Of course, your treatment must cost at least $2,000. You need an email list of at least 2,000 patients. You must be ready to roll up your sleeves and get your marketing working. And you can keep a secret or two. This sounds like you. Email me at miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk and tell me more about your treatment. If we agree I can help, I'll get you the details. Welcome back to DJ Yodeli. She is the author of the brand new book, Black Skin, and also owner of Westroom Aesthetics. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about your clinic? 
So Western Aesthetics is a skincare space um, where we do advanced treatments and consultations. Uh, mainly, um, we have a wide clientele, but we really focus on providing a safe space for women of color um, in terms of skincare education, skincare knowledge, product knowledge, in order to help with you know skin health. So you've you've essentially niched quite quite well um, and I'm very interested in this because I really think that actually in such a competitive market really every clinic needs to niche much better and you've done a fantastic job at it so first of all is that was was neat was the idea of niching so specifically scary to you because I think that's really what stops a lot of clinic owners they really believe that we have to cater for everyone and you're kind of the counter argument really yeah um I have to say, like a lot of clinic owners, I did start off being broad, um, but I'm a big believer in data. And when I looked at my data and I looked at the people coming to see me, it sort of rubber stamped my, you need to go down this road, you need to go down this niche road. And and like I say, I'm, I, I, I said to you at the, at the top of the interview, I, I was, I'm always very inspired by the American models of sort of standing in your lane. Um, and yeah, I decided that I would make that my thing. I looked around, I was like, no one else does this. No one else says this loud and proud. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and my data was backing me. Um, it was really backing me. And I thought I would, I am going to, you know, delve down on this. And, and, and that is exactly what I did. Because you can't really niche in a vacuum. It's really about what you really want to do plus what the market wants and, yeah. and where the gap is in the market. So yeah. you can't, you, looking at the data is, of course, the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and when I could see that, you know, I had women coming from Bournemouth, from Manchester, from Birmingham. And I, you know, and I think, hold on, there's something in this. I actually did field research. I did field research. I went to, I remember I went to the Afro hair and beauty show and I had my clipboard. I had brought a friend along with me. She had a clipboard and we were questioning about people's attitudes, especially, you know, it was a show filled with black women. I thought, where else are you going to get this many uh, fertile ground of information? Um, and we just stood out there and we, we canvassed opinion and all that. And although that, canvassing was for the benefit of the black skin directory again informed my thinking about really delving down and and honing my marketing um, around skin of color so how did you once you've decided that that was your niche where you did not it sounds like you didn't completely start off there it was a conscious decision at some mm -hmm. point how did you adjust your marketing um, marketing was adjusted through ensuring that when, for example, I, I do a lot of press interviews, I would make sure I focused on that. And marketing can be as simple as saying, this is my thing, you know, and follow through with that. In, in all my interviews, I would give a general viewpoint as well as add for women of color. Um, we did a lot of uh, 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 sort of small information booklets about, you know, uh, uh, especially for, for, for journalism, for journalists, how how is black skin different to white skin? So some of the stuff you read in the book about the melanocyte activity or collagen, you know, all of that, we used to put in little booklets, we used to write press releases, we'd send them out. So 
that is how we got the word out. I made sure very early on, I used my, my social media channels to definitely delve down on that message as well. Um, that's in directory. Did you find it to be an advantage? Was niching ultimately the right thing to do for you? Yeah, niching this app was absolutely is the right thing for for me personally and where I stand and in, in in and in how I want to present myself to the world. Um, absolutely, it's not for everyone, but for me, it absolutely works. And even if we were to widen our clinic strategy, um, I would still have this niche. I would still own this niche plus more. Yeah, it's easier to broaden out once once you have niched um, yeah. well, then you then you can broaden it out. And of course, there's different ways to niche. You know, when you said there's, it's not for everyone, there are different. You know, you can you can niche on a particular treatment, particular you know a particular demographic, um, mm-hmm. a particular price point. There are many different ways to niche yourself. And I think the other important thing is that, as you've kind of intimated. Um, it doesn't exclude you from doing other work. Really niching is about where you focus your marketing and the bulk of your mm-hmm. services, but it doesn't stop you treating other people. I'm sure that you still have many different types of women with different yeah. skin tones coming to you. Is that, yeah. is that, right? that is absolutely correct. We have a sizable number of white clients. We have a sizable number of of Asian skin tones. There's a wide variety of Asian skin tones. We have a wide variety, a large number of them, as well as we have our black clients. It we we niche in in providing a safe space for black women, but it doesn't mean we we are inaccessible to everybody else. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, and that is something we actually work very hard to protect that. Because the idea is no one should feel excluded. And we work very hard to ensure that our non-Black clients are aware of why we have the niche. They're not excluded from it. They participate in that niche. Um, They are aware of it because otherwise they then think, well, I keep coming to this clinic and all they ever talk about is Black people. They never talk about anybody else. Um, But they they are aware of why that niche exists. So obviously niching was a large part of your growth, but other than that, what have been the other secret? Obviously the, the, the podcast is called How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. Yeah. So beyond niching, what, what do you think are the other secrets really to your to your success and to your growth? Um, I think the fact that um, as a business owner, I'm actually, um, I don't present a finished product at all. Um, I'm very, uh, I'm very, I, I'm very open and very vulnerable um, on, especially on social media, like, especially like even last year, um, or when we were even setting up Western Aesthetics, people, I, I bring people along all the time, because part of my, part of my ethos is to let um, other Black women know that they can be and do things just success, as, as successfully, if not su- more successfully than I do things. So I'm, I'm, I'm always an open book. Um, I remember you being mean, on a- It's really about being very, very authentic and real yeah. and not presenting this kind of perfect yeah. image, which some people in the industry undoubtedly do. Yeah, because, and, and also I do not, I, I, I do not make aesthetics uh, or advanced treatments scary. I'm very, I like, again, authentic. If I'm going for Botox, I show it. You can see it on my social. I don't, um, I, 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 th- because one thing we learned from our research is that a lot of, especially for black women, it can feel quite scary, a, a space that they don't necessarily belong in or 
you know, so I, I make it accessible. Um, I also have the thing where I don't speak in science. I don't think anyone needs a science degree to understand um, various treatments or, product, or products or ingredients. I make it a point to speak in plain English at all times. Um, I think those are, those are things are building blocks that help open up my space and, and myself to, to more clientele. I see clinicians who are very much a finished product. And even I am like, oh my, even I get a bit scared sometimes and like, oh, wow. Um, and that can be alienating. Um, and I think I, from my experience, I completely agree that people should be completely accessible. Um, I, I, I think actually what you're saying, though, it's another form of niching, though, isn't it? Because there, there's space in the market for everyone. There's space in the market. There, there, are, the, there are people, not just women, mm-hmm. um, who want to, you know, who really are attracted to that kind of very glamorous, yes. um, you know, kind of, kind of approach. Whereas I think that many others want exactly what you're saying um but there's space for both and they're both niches in and of themselves really yeah i mean i I know very successful practitioners who literally are glam very very glam um and i I don't think i think i think it's nice to have all the differences actually because um it gives it gives consumers more choice right because they are consumers who actually do want that as well Um, but for me if you're asking me how i scaled my business i guess the niching in, in, in skin of color, the, I mean, the vulnerability, the or being authentic, those are all things that helped in, in speaking plain English. Those are all things that help making the service accessible. Um, those are all things that have that tremendously helped me. And I remember we spoke at some point last year, I think it was possibly at the beginning of the pandemic, and you told me how you were busy firing off personal emails to, to everyone, which I thought was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. That's part of this as well, isn't it? It's that personal touch and, and, mm-hmm. and really genuinely caring about people and, and keeping in touch with them on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we spend a lot of time um I, I don't always send those emails off by myself now, um, but we spend a lot of time ensuring that our clients are, are looked after. Um, and that involves sometimes we go over and above um, for them, but it's an important part of our, our, of our service. It doesn't mean that our clients are always right. We don't, we're not McDonald's, and the client, customer's not always right. However, we we do spend a lot of time, you know, making sure we keep in touch, um, things like birthdays, Christmas, you know, even if it's just a card, because obviously we've all been through a pandemic clinics, clinics are not necessarily flush to, to send out Christmas presents and all that. But we, we make sure that they know that we think about them. So you talked a lot about marketing and you really talked about um, the, the, the tone of your marketing and some of the messaging. Um, but on a practical level, you know, what's working for you? Is it, um, is there a particular platform, a particular, anything in particular that's really working for you in your marketing right now? Um, what's work? I mean, at the moment, I guess you could call my book a form of marketing. I think that's really, that's really helped, but, but that's mainly on, on social. What's working for us, I find a lot of the time is our newsletters, actually, um we have this thing email called the round- yeah email newsletters we have this thing called the roundup um where we um it's written in my voice i don't always write it but it's written in my voice um where people feel that they're talking to me every single client feels like 
I, it's me and them in a relationship. Um, and that really works for us. It works quite well for us in terms of just speaking one, one-to-one. People know that they can reply to those emails um, and we will be in touch. Um, also, our text messaging system works very well for us. Um, so we have things like automated texts that go out to our clients, especially if they've just been into clinic. Um, and clients always respond. It's so funny because I read the responses and they really think <laughs> they don't know it's, it's necessarily it's come from an automated source and all that comes to our inbox. I mean, some of the emails, the emails and sense, they are broadcasts, um, not the ones yeah. we talked about before. But that, that, that's what I see as well. Like the email is for sure absolutely 100% my favorite um, mm-hmm. to engage with people as well, both personally and, um, and with the clinics that we work with. Because if it's done right and you're not just yeah. sending those 20% off yeah. you know, graphic things, but you're really writing, as you said, in your voice, it's very, very personal. And that's so important. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it's funny you mentioned about the graphics and stuff. One thing we have as a rule, we don't discount. We don't discount anything. We don't give money off anything at any time. So, um, and I think... Yeah, I, I, find, I find that, when, again, when you're doing the emails well, you have the space to actually really talk about the treatments in depth. And that means you're less likely to have to discount. Yeah. Yeah, we um, one thing we we spend a lot of time every three months or so we analyze the data from where our clients are coming from, what their um, economic power is, even things like um, it's really I know this sounds really basic, but when we have team meetings, sometimes the girls will say, I've noticed we've had a lot of designer bag clients recently. So you're data-driven. It sounds like yeah. right. We're highly data-driven. We analyze all our data sources, Google Analytics, Squarespace website, MailChimp. We analyze all our data sources, even down to, you know, um, things like clients' occupations, where they heard about us. We, we spend a lot of time. Everything we do is driven by the data that we have. So we've talked a lot about your successes. What is your biggest, let's focus on the marketing for, for the moment. What is your biggest marketing challenge? Our biggest marketing challenge at the moment is we are coming up to a repositioning moment, especially with the book. Um, so going into the new year, um, my, my challenge is making sure that we we have to switch our marketing around just a little bit, just to tweak it a bit. Um, and also um, to remove myself from the mix a little bit more. So where we are. Ex- classic challenge of scaling, yeah. really. Yeah, where we are expanding um, and getting more therapists in. I have heard clients say, oh, that's nice that you're getting more therapists in. I'll still be I really want to see you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, remove that. So that's a, a marketing sh- uh, 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 procedure. <laughs> <laughs> that we need to undertake in the new year um, and also a, a bit of repositioning because I think the book the book is bringing in a new type of client um, who we need to create more diffusion treatments for that are a lower price point than what we currently have um, so we we need to switch things up a little bit again but I think I think that's great because every couple of every 18 months or so we, we have a step change growth and we switch things up anyway. So it's come at the right time. 
And I think, I think that's natural. And I also do think that things, we're still in this coronavirus time, which is very fluid. What you're saying really has nothing to do with coronavirus, but I think that in general, it is true that yeah. markets, you know, everything is still a little more fluid. So I think the businesses, you know, pivoting was not a one-time thing that we did. No, no, no. We, we, we have to continue to move. Um, definitely. I think, I think, we've settled down actually from Corona a little bit um, because the main bulk of our clients keep coming back, you know, and buying our packages and all that sort of stuff. And they weren't, if I had to, if I'm honest, they weren't particularly affected by Corona. Um, however, we do have another, another cohort of clients who were not necessarily affected by Corona, but they, they, that they're, they may be first jobbers or second jobbers. They may not be as flush as our package clients, but I still want to be, provide something for them, um, which is where our marketing is going to change slightly to make sure we're including them a little bit more. So I guess we started off talking about the book and let's end off talking about the book as well, because actually we, we did, we've talked a lot about your marketing, but as you said, a book is kind of a very classic, high-powered marketing thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call it a thing, but yeah, t- tactic, strategy, whatever you call it. Um, so the very first question I asked you was, why did you write it? But did you understand then um, when you decided to do it, how how big it would be in t- as, as a marketing method, essentially? Was that part of your considerations or did you just want to write it because, hey, that was, I needed to do this? No, the marketing wasn't part, which is why I said to you, I guess you could call a book a marketing tool. Um, it didn't feature at all. Um, it's only in the last few weeks, I know my assist, one of my clinic assistant has said, DJ, we're getting a lot more emails about people wanting to come off, coming just for a consultation with you. Um, you know, what do you want us to do about them? Or in the last week since the book has been published, we had people who pick through a chapter um, and then email us questions as as a result. And, you know, I've chosen this product based on what you wrote on your in your book. Can you just check it to make sure I'm right? And it's like, oh, this is a whole other issue. It's high, it's high impact. Yeah, th- yeah. So I wasn't. I did not. I did not think of the book as a marketing tool. However, I I, I it's quickly dawned on me that it is reaching a lot of places and that is going to bring a lot of interest in and how do we ensure we rescale and reconfigure in the new year? Because I, you know, I've, I've taken a month off work in mid, from mid December when we close, I'm off for a month, but that month is to allow me to work with some new, new, with a wider team to reconfigure for when we go into our first quarter which starts our quarter start in February. So when we're going to our first quarter in February, we can be a slightly different position. Well, when it's all died down a little in this in several months, maybe we'll do another interview <laughs> focusing on how to create and market a book because it is a very, very high impact tactic. We've actually never talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. Now I'm reaching the end and I'm like, oh no, I should have asked <laughs> how to create and market a book. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess that, that would be a very, very valid conversation, um, especially as, you know, never thought of it like that. Um, and 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 now that it's dawned on me, it you know, in the last week or so, it is something that's very, you know, it, it's worth it's worth people thinking about if they wanted to write a book that it does become this marketing tool and how to make sure they harness it well. 
Well, when we think of, yeah, it's provided you use it well, for sure. Yeah. But when we think of marketing, we think of big rocks and small pebbles. The small pebbles are kind of the, you know, the Instagram post that you post yeah. and then no one thinks about it again ever. You know, it's on your screen five seconds, but a book is a big It rock. lives forever. Yeah, yeah. Like a chunk of really super valuable content. And if you use it, as you said, it's clinic changing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's changing already we're looking at how our practice is changing and how we want to make sure we we use it well in the new year so where can people get their hands on your book so at all good bookstores in real life and online it's on w smith waterstones amazon um both american American amazon as well american amazon but yeah it's available everywhere and if people want to learn more about what you do where, where else can they go so my website, djiodele.com, it's a general signposting website. So if you're interested in the clinic, it will take you to the clinic. You can click on the button and it takes you to the clinic. If you're interested in Black Skin Directory, it will take you over there as well. Um, if you're interested in the book, and of course, it's got lots of information about the book. But other than that, on the, from a social point of view, you can generally find me on Instagram as well. Um, I'm djio underscore Ayodele, and I'm generally there every day. <laughs> And of course, we'll put all those links at, in the show notes. So anyone who's listening to this, just pop down to the show notes and um, and click away because all the links will be there. DJ, thank you very much. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. And for everyone else, I'm Miriam Shaviv, Director of Brainstorm Digital, and I will see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetics Clinic. <laughs>